Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of the troubling realities we face in our day is the overwhelming amount of information. Especially in the last 18 months, we've been dealing with real-time data on COVID-19, election results, vaccination rates, whether or not our kids are in school or on NTI, taxes, inflation. And with all of that, it's hard to separate the signal from the noise. But one report came out recently that has not gotten very much attention, and that is the state of religion in America from Gallup Research. That They've been tracking membership in houses of worship in America since 1937, and for the first time ever in over 80 years of tracking, membership has dropped below 50%. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belong to a house of worship, that's down from 50% just three years ago, and that's down from 70% in 1999. Now, what jumps out from this report is how quickly the drop is occurring. In just 20 years, there's been a 23% drop. Now, one important insight about these reports is the growing numbers of people who are unaffiliated. They've been dubbed the nuns, people who have no religious affiliation at all. And the numbers are exploding with the younger generations. And, and leaders across the church are trying to make sense of the trend. They're trying to draw insights. And, and some of them are of the opinion that if we're losing nominal and cultural Christians, that may be a good thing. But it's not just Christian leaders who uh, are saying this. I've heard conversations and I've read comments from people who, who they say something like this. They'll say, well, good. We, we don't want pe- we need to purge the church anyway. We don't really want people here who just play in church, who are Christians in name only. But what if? What if it's not just happening amongst nominal Christians, right? People who are just attenders or, or being religious. What if it's our most dedicated young people who've grown up in church? They've been to every VBS. They've been to summer camps. They serve on mission trips. See, we are in a great time of shaking in the church of Jesus Christ. Pastor Phil, two years ago, if you remember, gave a word about the sifting that's happening and that was coming to the church. It was a prophetic insight that was before the pandemic, 
It was before the chaos of the elections. It was before the explosion of racial injustice and trauma issues. I could keep going on the list. But we all know that there are forces at work that are trying to pit us against one another, who are trying to divide us. And in all of these areas, people are being overwhelmed. And now more than ever, we need to know that we are one people. We are one family in Christ Jesus. That's why this series in Galatians is so important during this season. The Holy Spirit is calling us back to the main thing. And he's showing us that trying to unify and build the church on anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ will fail us. It's a fool's errand. We come today to the end of the letter of Galatians, and here the Apostle Paul is bringing one final appeal, a closing argument, if you will, to help this church to clearly understand the gospel and what it means to live in the freedom of that gospel. And before I move into our text today, I want to give a quick summary of where we've been in Galatians and recall some powerful implications that we have by being transformed in the gospel. Here are some of the highlights from this series, highlights from this letter that we've reviewed so far. At the heart of Paul's passionate appeal to the Galatians is the truth and the purity of the gospel. It's faith in Jesus' sin-bearing death as our substitute on the cross is what saved us, saves us. It's what justifies us. And in that new life, we have been set free so we can live free. We are under grace, we're not under law, so it's not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has already done. Remember, we are the people of God, and we are, and we are the people of God that are rooted in ancient promises to the covenant of Abraham, and because of our unity in Christ, that means there's no division between races, social classes, or genders in the church. Because of the gospel, we're no longer slaves, but we've become sons and daughters of Father God. We've become adopted into His family. And as we walk in the Spirit, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. And instead of trying to fulfill the law of works, we joyfully fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. And throughout this series, Pastor Tim has given us a list of powerful, life-changing implications if we just let the gospel in, and I want to review those quickly. Number one, if you really let the gospel in, you will never look down on anyone again. How could we? Right? We didn't save ourselves, right? We, we, did, we brought nothing to the table. It's all grace. Number two, we'll never be jealous of anyone ever again. How could we be jealous when we are sons and daughters of the Most High God? We are heirs. We're co-heirs with Christ. Number three, we'll never be afraid of anything ever again. What do we have to be afraid of? Our Father, Abba, owns everything. Number four, we'll never be controlled by what other people think. That's so good. It's so powerful in this day and age. We don't need the approval of other people when we have approval of Father God. We are accepted. We are adopted. And that, that means we don't, we're not in, in bondage or we're not controlled by what other people think of us. Number five, we'll never see problems the same ever again because we know God is with us and God is in us. Yeah. And number six, we'll never see our neighbor the same ever again 
And we know that every person is made in the image of God. And because of that, they have incredible worth and value and dignity simply because God made them. Now, in his, closing, in his closing to the Galatians, Paul revisits many of these key themes from early in his letter. And here he sets the stage for one last exposition of the supremacy of the true gospel of Jesus Christ versus the weakness of performance-based religion. Galatians 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, here it's likely that Paul had been dictating his letter to a scribe until now, and he moves to the close of the letter because the issues he's addressed come to, uh, they come to a boiling point. They come with an urgency and a force that Paul says, give me that pen. I'm taking it into my own hand. And from here, Paul moves into his first movement, the danger of religion. Galatians 6, 12, and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now here in verses 12 and 13, Paul goes further than just condemning the false teaching of the need to add circumcision to faith in Jesus Christ. Up to now, he's been very clear that circumcision and following the law is to return to bondage and to slavery. But here, Paul gets to the motive. He exposes why the Judaizers were so adamant. And it's not that they were benevolently looking out for uh, the church uh, in Galatia, the Christians there, to make sure that they were truly saved. They weren't motivated by love at all. And this isn't the case of two different approaches to the best solution where reasonable, reasonable people can disagree. No, this is a case where people are diametrically opposed to each other and there is no gray area. It's either the gospel or it's a false gospel. Remember the language that Paul used in chapter 1, the strong language, chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, let him be accursed. And, and remember that the language there, accursed, is, is strong. It, it's it's, it's very powerful. In other words, he's saying they can go to hell. Now, Paul is angry at what's happening to the young church in Galatia. And here in chapter 6, at the end, Paul uncovers an uglier and darker motive. In verses 12 and 13, Paul is challenging hypocritical and self-serving religion. And in this passage, he's calling out three things, comfort, hypocrisy, and appearances. So verse 12 this is the first danger of religion that Paul confronts. It's comfort. Now, here in verse 12, Paul revisits again the, the topic of circumcision. He's been very clear that keeping the law through any works, including circumcision, will not lead to justification, right? It won't lead you. Following the rules, following religious behavior, modification will not get you into right relationship with God. No, no. Instead, it's going to lead back to slavery and bondage. 
And here, circumcision had become the litmus test to who were the true people of God. And Paul is exposing the motive of the Judaizers and showing that their obsession with circumcision has nothing to do with concern for the Galatians. It's all about them. They want to use the Galatians to shield themselves from persecution. They were more concerned with the comfort and approval of their religious culture. Every week I send a, a, an email to the life group leaders. That it's, it's a roundup of helpful, helpful articles on how, how to lead small groups, uh, leadership, theology, cultural issues. But each week at the bottom I have a section that says... Remember the persecuted church. And in that, I link to stories that are happening all the time, real, real life and death struggles that Christians face across the world on a daily basis. Uh, lost businesses. Uh, in, in India, Christians have the worst jobs. Excommunication from family, harassment, and violence sometimes leading to death. And this suffering and persecution that I just mentioned, that, that's what the early church was facing. And see, the, the Judaizers, they wanted no part of that. Not at all. I mean, look, look, let's be honest. Most of us admit that we don't want any part of that either. And if you're paying attention, it's obvious that following Jesus is going to become more costly. There is coming a time when you may come to a moral dilemma where you have to decide what you fear more. Will you fear the opinion of man and your loss of comfort? Or will you fear the Lord and what He thinks about you and your loss of integrity in your relationship with the Lord? 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, the lesson Paul has to the Galatian church and for New Life Church is to understand that to embrace the cross means to embrace persecution. And our job pastorally is to equip you before that day comes. Now, the second danger of religion that Paul confronts is hypocrisy. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Again, circumcision is here at the forefront, and the main issue of keeping the law is the issue here in the Galatian church. Now, let's remember, Paul was no novice. He's no rookie in the area of law-keeping. Paul, Paul, was, Paul was the goat. Paul, Paul was the, the Michael Jordan of law-keeping, right? He says in Philippians 3, 4, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul knows the Judaizers were hypocrites. They said one thing and they did another. At a conference a few years back, uh, the speaker made the point. He said, legalism makes it hard on you, but easy on me. Right? 
We tend to follow the rules that we're good at or are convenient for us while judging others and putting weights on them that are impossible for them to carry. And that kind of hypocrisy shows itself uh, as a way of of self-justification and feeling very superior about ourselves. And it's this hypocrisy is one of the things that's devastating the church today. Russell, Russell Moore is a public, is public theo, theo, theologian at Christianity Today. He used to be with uh, a very senior post in, in the Southern Baptist Convention. In a recent article, he, he reflects on uh, the growing numbers of young people leaving the church. And one of the things that he observes is that, in, in his observation, is that the, the, the young people that are leaving the church, they're not the young people that are on the fringe, right? The, these aren't the nominal or cultural Christians who want to rebel against their parents' beliefs. But no, what he's seeing is the young people that are leaving the church, these are the most committed young people to the hardest part of Christianity in, in the modern world, right? Belief in the supernatural, right? Accepting rigorous demands of discipleship. That's what they want. They understand the need for, uh, for community and accountability and transparency and living in a multi-generational church. This is what Russell Moore says. He says, what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. When they see evangelicalism as a political interest group, they can easily see where the ground of unity is. And what they're really asking about is integrity, about whether all this holds together. What they ask is not, can I believe what you're saying, but do you believe what you're saying? right? Some of Jesus' harshest rebukes were for religious leaders who did not practice what they preach. This is Jesus in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, this resonates with us because instinctively the life of the messenger authenticates the truth of the message. Discipleship is more caught than taught. Now, come on, we know this is true. If you're a serious Christian, you know that discipleship isn't about classes. It's not about curriculum. It's not about going to conferences. It's life on life. And nowhere is this more powerfully seen than in our families. Our kids are watching us. We are the number one influence for God on our kids. And it's the daily faithfulness in the small things where there's no spotlight or platform to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But it's not just our families. There are plenty of other opportunities to invest in the next generation. Here at New Life Church, we have a huge 
youth group, and children's ministry that need mature, loving mentors to invest in them. Please hear me. Working with our young people is a, tr- is a privilege. Yes. Yes. It's something we get to do. Yes. Now, the third danger of religion that Paul confronts is appearances. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You know, the religion that he's challenging the, the, the religion of keeping up appearances was very much part of the honor-shame culture uh, that Paul is living in and speaking into. My, Michael Gorman is a New Testament scholar, and he says that, that honor-shame culture is simply defined, refers to the, the ongoing gain or loss of esteem by one's peers, their family, their social class, etc. And he said, in Roman society, respect was primarily based on things like wealth, education, your rhetorical skill, your ability to speak, your family, pedigree, political connections. And these were all of the statuses, the the culture status indicators. And he says that in this context, self-esteem would be conceived as a, a terrible oxymoron. The only esteem one received was bestowed not by the self, but by the group, right? In, In this environment, peer pressure is not something negative or to avoid, but it's viewed as appropriate and welcome. And here at the end of verse 13, Paul is critiquing, critiquing the religion of external appearances and self-promotion. And the Judaizers were hoping to boost their honor and their respectability by showing the powers that be that they were able to submit the Galatians to circumcision. And I know when you read story, read accounts like that, we're tempted to make snap judgments and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm not religious. I would never do anything like that. We're not into approval from our peers. All right, but here's a modern example that I think is going to help us. And it's a, it's a story that I've used before. It's an illustration. I think it applies perfectly. Tim Challies is a, is a pastor, and he's got a, a really influential blog where he, he posts a lot of articles and different things. And uh, a few years ago, he wrote an article, uh, a funny article, a tongue-in-cheek called uh, The Art of the Humble Brag. Now, according to Macmillan Dictionary, a humble brag is a statement in which you pretend to be modest, but you're really using as a way of telling people about your success or achievements. It's bragging in the guise of humility, putting a thin veneer of humble over a clear expression of proud. Now, in this article, Chalice offers us help on reminding our friends that we're still worthy of their attention. And here are three examples. The first is the hide it in a question, humble brag. He says, try hiding your accomplishment in the form of a question. Is anyone else going to the White House tonight? It would be great to meet up. <laughs> Number two, remind them that you're popular. Now, the humble brag is an ideal medium for quietly telling others about your popularity. Quote, preached the worst sermon of my life, but still got a sore hand from signing all those Bibles afterward. (laughs) Or again, I never get used to seeing my face up on all those billboards. (laughs) Right? And then the third one, you you feign embarrassment or awkwardness, right? You're always humble when you're feeling embarrassed or awkward. And you can show that by saying, you know, Quote, that awkward moment when you ask Jim McGaffigan to sign a book and he asks you to sign yours. 
It's funny, I know, Charlie closes with this quote. He says, bragging is an integral part of your social media presence. I trust this little guide will prove helpful as you humbly brag about all the good things you are, all the great things you have, and all the excellent things that you've done. Now, these are all funny examples, and we're all in on the joke here. But in all seriousness, when we boast, we're revealing what's in our, inside our heart. Luke 6.45, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the things that our heart treasures reveal where we get our security, our value, our identity. So boasting really is a form of worship, right? So the question is not, should you boast or not? We can't help but not to. We were made to worship. But the question is, is what are you boasting about? Or more important, who's the focus of your boasting? In the first movement, Paul has explained the dangers of external religion that is motivated by appearances and comfort. And he contrasts that with movement number two, the centrality of the cross. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In verse 14, Paul makes a sharp contrast by revisiting the supremacy and the centrality of the cross. Here, Paul reveals the only worthy reason to boast N.T. Wright notes that for Paul, the cross is no mere theory or theological concept or idea. No, it's the ultimate expression of God's love, something that he personally experienced. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the hardest things for us in the modern West to understand is that for most of history and for much of the world, boasting in the cross and following Jesus is to embrace humiliation, shame, and weakness. See, that's what the cross symbolized in the time of the early church. See, we're used to a dominant Christianity where we're always winning. And Paul's boasting in the cross is a biblical challenge to that paradigm and redefines what winning looks like. In verse 14, Paul says that the world has been crucified to him. The world here refers to the world system that is opposed to God and his kingdom. Its structures, its patterns, its philosophies, its institutions. And here Paul is saying that the world's political, social, economic, military systems, the definition of success and what it means to live the good good life have all lost their power on him. And verse 14, Paul finishes with saying that he has been crucified to the world. And here he's referring to the inside out transformation that happens when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're born again. God's Spirit comes to reside on the inside of us. That is amazing. 
And when that happens, we begin the process of being transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus. And our desires and our affections begin to be reordered from self toward God and His kingdom. The, the New Life uh, 40th anniversary project has, has been a, a lot of fun to work on. Tim, as he mentioned, there's going to be some, some really great um, video clips from people who, who used to go here. And, and I've had the pleasure of being in on almost all those interviews. And um, about a month ago, I was interviewing Tim Talbot, right? We were doing it remotely. And Tim told the story of how he got into missions. Uh, he was uh, in a college ministry up in Minnesota, and they took a short-term mission trip to Mexico to give out Bibles, to do like just, you know, house-to-house ministry. And uh, he was in his early 20s at the time, but there was a woman who was in her early 30s who was their guide and their, their helper delivering prayers and, and helping to interpret. And, and Tim remarked how impressed he was at her humility and, and, and how God's love was just flowing through her, really impressed him. And then he said at the end of the two weeks, they had a time that they were, um, before he went back to Minnesota, and they were just sharing about their families. And Tim was telling about his family here at Louisville and New Life, and she was sharing about her family. And that uh, a week before Tim got there, that her three-year-old daughter had just died. Now, in the midst of that suffering and loss, Tim said she was still able to, uh, to see the goodness of God. And that's why she served the Lord with all of her heart. Now, Tim uh, said he couldn't get his mind around someone who had been through that kind of tragedy and loved, so, loved others with such humility. He said that instead of building a wall between her and God, it was like she built a staircase to God in relationship. And on the bus ride back to Minnesota, he kept going over and over in his mind, how is this possible? He kept talking to, talking to God, how is this possible? And God said to him, he said, Tim, it's because I'm at the center of our relationship. And Tim said he realized that up to that point, everything in his Christian life about him had been about him, his healing, his provision, his ministry. And I got to tell you, that interview wrecked me. I see, I love Tim, and Tim's a guy that when I see, I see Jesus. And for him to say that just brought a, reminded me afresh that what it means to follow Jesus and live for others. When we center our lives on the cross, and we, when we begin to let the gospel in and take over Every area of our lives, we begin to we stop living for ourselves and we begin to live for God and others so that they can know Him. <clears throat> Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In verse 15, Paul uses circumcision to get to the heart of the matter. The most important thing, new creation. See, nothing external in the end really counts. You can't put your identity in anything that you've done, whether it's circumcision or uncircumcision, and that's the point. 
to find your significance or identity in anything other than Jesus Christ, even the good things, is still to operate by the value system of the world. And Paul's use of new creation here works on two levels. First, he means personal salvation, being born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Paul's reference here to new creation isn't just about personal salvation, though. See, there's a cosmic dimension at, at work here as well. Remember in in chapter 1, Paul said that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age that looks forward to the age to come. That's final resurrection. That's new heaven. That's new earth. See, it's not just about salvation, but it's about redemption. Everywhere the curse is found. Anthony Bradley says it this way, God's kingdom redemption will touch everything in creation. People, places, and things are brought into the rule and the reign of King Jesus. God has made this very simple for me lately. It's helped me and I hope it helps you. See, because we're bringing God's presence and His kingdom wherever we go, right, in in every situation, right, every every conversation, every business meeting, every interaction, because we're bringing the kingdom, it should be better. Hear me, because we're bringing the kingdom into that context, that context should get better. And that's what it means to live the cross-centered life. And what an amazing opportunity we have. How do we live this cross-centered life, though? Movement number three, the power of grace. Galatians 6, 16, and, all, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now, Paul closes out his letter with a final blessing to the Galatian church. He connects his closing by calling for everyone who walks by this standard, this focus on new creation, to be blessed with God's peace and mercy. And Paul's reference here to walking in verse 16 is a reminder of his exhortation in Galatians 5.16 that we should be walking by the Spirit. Now, here in verse 17, there's a middle bracket where Paul has one final reference to the cross-centered life. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, we know from Paul's other letters and the accounts and acts that the marks of Jesus on his body were real. The stonings, the beatings, the scourgings. And Paul is signing off here and closing out his argument by saying, don't trouble me anymore. Stop with your boasting. Stop with your hypocrisy. And Paul is saying to the Judaizers and to all of us, 
who would hang our hat on external religious performance. He's saying, I know Jesus in a way you never could. Paul will say later in, in Philippians 3.10, talking about knowing Jesus, he says that I might know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings. Oh, we want the power. We want that resurrection power, don't we? Oh. Sharing in His sufferings? Not so much. And Paul knows from personal experience that all who live as cross-centered disciples will need God's grace. And grace has been woven throughout Galatians. And here in verse 18, Paul crescendos with a prayer that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us. Grace in the gospel is the free gift of God's goodness. His favor, His forgiveness, His redemption, justification, adoption in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Grace. We don't earn it. We simply receive it. Joyfully and humbly. And this is such a fitting and beautiful closing to Galatians. Because to live the cross-centered life is impossible to live in our own strength and resources. See, grace isn't just all the great uh, divine favor and the things that it is talked about. Grace is also supernatural ability and power to live out our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need that more than ever today. We need it in our marriages we need it for our kids. We need it to bring the light of Jesus Christ to a dark and broken world. Hebrews 4, 6, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, have, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And we don't have to beg for that. And God, our Father, delights and joyfully gives more grace.